wanted to start the morning off with a question. Why are we here? And I don't mean the big question yet of why are we here, but why are we here this morning? What causes us to get up out of bed on a Sunday morning, particularly on a long weekend, we've got tomorrow off, get dressed up, get our kids together, get them in the van, get them here, drop them off, and get into the sanctuary. That's an exhausting process, and if any of you have kids, you know that's an exhausting process. From beginning of that process to the moment you sit down in the sanctuary, that's exhausting. Why, why do it? Why go through it? Why do we get up on Sunday mornings and come here? Because I know somewhere in this country and somewhere in this world today, there are people who are doing it strictly out of habit. It has become something they do. Well, it's what we do. We go to church. It's a part of our routine. Every Sunday, we go to church. But when we do that, I'm not saying we do that, but when that happens, we forget about purpose and love. We forget the reason we're here is because of a loving relationship with God. It's a loving relationship that we have with God that brings us here. And because we love God and we know we're loved by God, we want to be here in his house. And we want to be here surrounded by his people. We want to be here with people who God loves and who love God. That's a part of our purpose. We're here because of love. The reason we exist is because God loves us. That's why we exist. Purpose and love are connected together. The writer Mark Twain said, the two greatest days in someone's life are the day they're born and the day they realize their purpose. Think about the day you realized your purpose. Probably connected somehow to that day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know it then you have a different purpose. You have a greater purpose. And that purpose is love. We are meant for love. But it's not just our purpose. It's a commandment. It's a commandment to be in that loving relationship with God. And Jesus tells us that in Matthew 22. As he's being challenged by an expert in the law, a lawyer, if you will, he's challenging Jesus and he asks him a question. And Jesus had previously silenced the Sadducees. And it says here in Matthew chapter 22, and we start reading at verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Commandment and purpose connected with love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Well, hey, I can get behind that. That's, that's pretty good. Me and God in a relationship together. He loves me. I love him. Everything's great. And it'd be really, really great if Jesus had stopped talking right there. 
But that's where it gets a little complicated for us. Jesus did not stop talking right there. He has a little more to say about this. And you go on in Matthew uh, 22, and Jesus continues at verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, loving God with all that we are is directly connected to loving neighbor as well. Loving neighbor as self. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably get that wrong a lot. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And I think about my life. Well, I love myself an awful lot. The house I have is because I love self, right? The clothes I wear are because I love self. The shoes I have, again, because I love self. The truck I drive, again, is because I love self. I'm not offering any of those things up to my neighbor. I don't even let my wife drive my truck. In fact, when we went to Papua New Guinea, I told her one of my last instructions was, don't let anybody borrow my truck. And I hid the keys. <laughs> Loving neighbor as self. I thought, what does that really mean? It means loving my neighbor the way I want to be loved. And the way I want to be loved has nothing to do with stuff. It has to do with being appreciated, being cared for, simply being loved unconditionally. So sometimes I admit that I, I struggle with loving neighbor as self. And a little later, we're going to get to an example where Jesus tells us how to love. But I also, I also struggle with knowing who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I'm a bit maybe a legalist. Some would say I'd make a really good legalist or a really good fundamentalist. I like the letter of the law. Okay, I've got a degree. I've got a degree in criminal justice. I really like the letter of the law. I like the law. I love the law. I like to follow the law to the T. Okay? That's what this lawyer is doing. He's saying, hey, show me the limit of the law. Show me the scope of the law. I don't want to go any further than the scope. I want to stay right there. I want to see what I have to do. Who exactly is my neighbor? Because that's where I get confused. Is my neighbor the person across the street from me? Is my neighbor the person to my left, to my right? Is my neighbor the person diagonal to me? Is my neighbor the person who lives behind me? Is my neighbor the person two doors down who I don't know their name, but I wave at them every day? Is that my neighbor? And see, so the lawyer wants to know. And it's really a bare minimum question. I want to do the bare minimum. Just tell me what I have to do, and I'll do that, but nothing more. You see, Jesus defines neighbor for us, and he's going to define purpose and love for us. And it's in a piece of scripture we may be familiar with, but we're going to look at it from a different way today, and it's the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is found in Luke chapter 10. And it's interesting that this parable is brought on by yet another question by a lawyer. Now, again, he's just doing his job. He's a lawyer. But we'll talk a little bit more about him. So he's asked this question in Luke 
chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And this is a longer selection of scripture, but there's, there's a lot here, so we need to look at the entire selection. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus' reply said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite was coming. And when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This lawyer is the first person we're going to talk about in this whole selection here. So when I've heard this before, the focus was always on the good Samaritan, but there's actually six individuals we're going to talk about in this, this piece of scripture and in this parable. There's a total of six people we need to talk about. But the first one's the lawyer. And the lawyer's interested in doing things through the law. He wants to know where the law can get him. So that's why he asked the questions. And he's in that old school of thinking. Where will the law get me? Tell me what I must do. And that's what he's saying. Who must I love? Who must I help? Tell me what I must do so that I may have eternal life. It's a very self-centered question. Show me the parameters of this. Let me put this in a nice little box so that I may have eternal life. Or perhaps it's, well, I'm a lawyer, and sometimes, sometimes lawyers like to find loopholes. Let me find the loophole in here. Let me find a way out in here. Let me find that little clause that lets me off the hook. And that little clause is, what's narrowed down my neighbor? Let's be real specific about it. So that's the lawyer's job. His job is to follow the law. It's interesting that each time there's a challenge that comes to Jesus, it comes from a lawyer. He's the one raising the challenge. So in response to the challenge, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the parable of the Good Samaritan starts off with the priest. It doesn't start off with the Good Samaritan. It starts off with the priest. And the priest is walking down the road, and he sees a fallen man. He sees a fallen, injured, hurt, wounded individual. And what does the priest do? Nothing. He does nothing. He says, I'm, 
above that. I don't even want to know. The priest doesn't even take a closer look. He sees what's going on. And what's he do? He makes it a point to distance himself from the hurt. He makes it a point to distance himself from the lost. He makes it a point to turn his face away. He buries his head in the sand. I don't want to know. I want nothing to do with it. Probably a little bit judgmental. Well, just a fall down drunk. Well, probably fell into the wrong crowd. He probably fell into the wrong people. He probably had it coming to him. He's probably a drug addict. It was probably a gambling debt. He, he did it to himself. It's got nothing to do with me. It's his problem. I don't want to know anything about his problem. That's his problem. I'm going this way. I've got things to do that's beneath me. So he doesn't even want to know. What was it that's been said? What does it take for evil to flourish? One good person doing nothing? Well, there it is. One good person did absolutely nothing. The one thing they did, the priest, was to distance themselves from a hurting and wounded and injured person. Third person in the story is the Levite. The Levite would have been, would have been a, temple, a temple worker, a church worker, uh, if you will. So the Levite comes upon the same man, walking down the same path. And when you look at the Levite and what the scripture says about his interaction, the Levite gets closer. He actually lays eyes upon the man. He sees the problem. The Levite sees what's going on. He's aware of the problem. And what does he do? I don't have time for this. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to get involved. I'm on my way to church. I'm I'm an important person. I don't have time to get caught up. I don't have time to be slowed down. There's going to be questions asked. The authorities are going to show up. They're going to want to know what happened. They're going to hold me up. I don't want to be involved. So I see that this person is hurting. I see this person is wounded. I see that this person is injured. They need someone to help them. But that someone isn't me. I'm going to go this path over here, away from that. Well, guess what that path is? That, that's that wide path we talk about. That's the wide path right there, boy. Let me go take this wide path. This wide path of my own interest. This wide path of my own importance. This wide path of loving myself. Let me get on that path. Let's go that way. Let's go away from the hurting. Let's go away from the injured. Let's go away from the bloody. Let's go this way. We know where the wide path leads. So you have a lawyer. You have a priest. You have a Levite. It's almost like a setup for a joke. And then you have the Samaritan. Now, there's a reason that Jesus uses a Samaritan, okay? Because the crowd that Jesus is talking to, this lawyer would have despised the Samaritan. They did not like the Samaritans. 
And you've heard the story about the woman at the well and how Jesus went through Samaria. They would have avoided that. They would have avoided doing that. They would have avoided that interaction. Okay, the strict Jews would have avoided that woman at the well. So again, here we have a Samaritan that's at the heart of this story. And Jesus is doing it to make a point. And it's interesting that after Jesus has made his point, after he's told the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then he asked the lawyer, he asked the expert in the law, who was the neighbor? The lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan. He cannot get it to come off of his lips. He responds with the one who had mercy on him. He can't even utter it. So Jesus uses the Samaritan specifically. So the Samaritan comes along and the Samaritan gets up close and personal. The Samaritan sees what is going on. It sees the blood. He sees the wounds. He sees the injuries. He sees the hurt and he takes pity on him. He takes pity on him. What he doesn't do is ask questions. What he doesn't do is figure out what the cost is going to be to him, what it's going to do to his time frame, what it's going to do to his daily plans. He doesn't think about how dirty he's going to get. He doesn't think about all those other circumstances that could go on in there. He doesn't consider it. What he does is he takes pity on him and he immediately begins to care for the injured, lost, hurting person. Loads him up on the donkey covers the wounds, oil and wine, puts them on the donkey, and then goes and arranges care for the hurt, the injured, the lost individual. Takes time out of his schedule. At this point, the blood's on him. He's got a mixture of blood on him, a mixture of oil and wines on him from dealing with the injuries. He's got up close. He's got in there, the wounded. He's bandaged it. He's wrapped it. He's covered in it. He loads this person up, puts him on his shoulder, takes him over to the donkey. He's covered in it at this point. He is dirty. He is bloody. And he continues to provide care. He takes him to the inn and says, hey, I need to arrange care for this person. This person is hurt. This person is injured. This person is wounded. And I need to make sure that they get the care. Here, I'm going to pay up front. I'm going to give you some money now. I want you to take care of this person. Let them stay here. Let them rest. Let them heal. Let them recover. I'm going to give you some money right now up front. And when I come back, I'm going to take care of whatever expense there was. I'm going to reimburse you for whatever expense you encounter for taking care of this person. The Samaritan is saying, it doesn't matter the cost to me. I'm not counting cost here. It doesn't matter. This is a person who needs help. This is a person who is hurt. It doesn't matter what it looks like to me. I want to make sure they're taken care of. I'm not looking out for myself in this. Yeah, my plans are on hold. Yes, I'm late for my important date. Yes, I'm out two denarii and then some more out of my pocket. But I don't care. Here, take care of him. I'll be coming back for him. And then when I come back for him, I'll take care of any expenses that you may have had. Lawyer, priest, Levite, and a good Samaritan. The only way 
the good Samaritan sees what is going on with this injured individual is because the good Samaritan takes a closer look. Yes, the Levite took a closer look, but the Levite did not see this as a person. Doesn't see it as a person. Sees it as a burden. Sees it as a problem. Sees it as an inquisition coming down. Sees it as a lot of questions that's going to happen. Levite did not see the robbed individual as a person. The Samaritan takes a closer look. They see it all. They see a person. Philippians 2.4 tells us this. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And that is exactly what that Samaritan does. That Samaritan is not looking out for his own interest at this point. Think about it in this day and age. All the questions that would run through our mind, uh, those of us who are not first responders, if we came upon a bloodied person on the path, where does our mind start to go? Oh, man, I bet they're dirty. Oh, they've probably got this. Oh, they've probably got that. I shouldn't touch them. That's where our mind tends to go. Samaritan just hops right in. Not looking to his own interest. Not considering what might happen to him. Not worried about his time frame. Not worried about his money. Not worried about catching whatever this person has. Not worried about rubbing elbows with this person. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. That's how we see what is really going on in the life of somebody. That is how we see someone who is really hurting, someone who is really struggling. But to do that, you have to get close to them. And for them and you, you have to get uncomfortably close to them. I'm making some folks right here uncomfortable right now. That's how you do it. You have to get uncomfortably close to them. It's uncomfortable for them at first, and it's going to be uncomfortable for you. But that is how you do it. That is how you make a difference. Because guess what? From what we know, people are messy. People are dirty. People are sloppy. People are hurt. People are wounded. And what they, they don't want our house and our stuff and our trucks. What they want is someone to get close to them. What they want is someone to take a deeper, closer look at what's going on in their lives. They want someone to care no matter the cost. What they want is a good Samaritan. That's what they want in their life. They want someone to come along and say, hey, I'm going to help take care of you until you can get back on your feet. I'm not going to enable you, but I'm going to help take care of you until you can get back on your feet. But the word look is the key word in this particular piece of scripture. Because in the Greek, that word is skopos. Skopos. It is the word we get scope from. It is the word we get microscope from. And see, there's two things you can do with a microscope. And unfortunately, what we sometimes do to those who are hurting, those who are wounded, those who are lost, and those who are injured, we definitely take a microscope to them, and we pick apart their lives. And we say things like, it's their own fault. They had it coming. Well, I guess they got to learn the hard way. 
Well, man, it's a generational thing for them. We take a microscope to them in a bad way. Guess what? The hurt, the lost, and the injured of this world, they don't need our condemnation, and they don't need our judgment. They get enough of it in the circles they run in. They don't need that from us. What they need us to do is take that same microscope and take a closer look at them and see that they're people and see that they're hurting and they're injured and they're wounded and that they need help. And when we take that microscope, that scope off to them, we learn about them. We figure out things about them. We realize that they all have a story. And sometimes something happened along in their story. Somehow their dream was derailed for whatever reason. We learn that they have families. We learn that they have needs. We learn why they behave the way they do when we take a scope to them and we find things out about them. But it's going to involve us getting close. When you use a microscope, you've got to get right up on top of it. It's going to involve us getting close. It's going to involve us getting dirty. It might involve us getting some blood on our hands. It might mean we got to reach into our pocket for a denarii or two. It might mean all those things. It might mean that we got to put our interest aside for a moment. But it'll make a difference. It'll make a huge difference in their life. It's four people we've talked about so far. Let's talk about that good Samaritan. Let's talk about this one who comes along on a donkey and brings about healing, brings about care and love and compassion, the one who bandages up wounds, the one who heals. You know what the good Samaritan sounds like to me? Sounds like Jesus. Someone coming along on a donkey, reaching out to the injured, reaching out to the hurting, reaching out to the wounded, reaching out to the lost. That sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Reaching out to the person who can't repay them. Reaching out to the person who maybe can't say thank you. Reaching out to the person who maybe can't show appreciation reaching out to the person who could not help themselves, the person who could not heal themselves. Wow. Good Samaritan sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Jesus doesn't come right out and say it. And he's using the parable here, an allegory here. When we look at this and we look at the one who gets involved in our lives, if we look at the one who's covered in blood because of somebody else, that sounds like Jesus to me. When I think of someone covered in blood for somebody else, I think of Jesus. This is where I go. I think about that. There's a sixth person in this parable. It's not as obvious as some of the other ones. But it's the inn. It's the place that the Samaritan takes the wounded for healing. And it's the place the Samaritan takes the injured to heal and says, stay here 
until I come back. You're safe here. You're going to be cared for here. You're going to be loved here. You're going to be looked after here. I have total faith in this place right here. And the inn is the church. The inn is the church. And Jesus says, wounded, healing, injured, hurting, stay here until I come back for you. And I am coming back for you. Stay here in my place of refuge, in my place of safety, in my place of love, in my place of care. I've made all the arrangements. I've made all the arrangements, both now and later. I've made all the arrangements for you to be here in this safe, wonderful, loving place, this inn. And that's where this falls on us. We've got to be that inn, that safe, loving, healing place. We have to be the place that Jesus can guide his hurt and his wounded and his lost. And Jesus says, go there. We have to be that welcoming, protective, secure place where people can stay and heal. They can stay as long as they need to. They can stay as long as they like. See, Jesus was very, very specific with this story. And he showed us all the how-not-tos in there. All the how-not-tos are in there. He even goes so far as the there's a little word when he has an exchange with that lawyer. He asks the lawyer, how do you read it? See, the lawyer wants to challenge Jesus, but Jesus is challenging him right back. Well, how do you read it? Not, he doesn't ask him, what does it say? How do you read it? And sometimes the problem with us is it's how we read things. That's no good. How we read things is no good. We need to read things the way the Samaritan reads things. Person, a human being, someone created just like us in God's image, someone who's fallen on hard times, someone who was hurt, someone who needs cared for, someone who needs not judged, someone who just needs to be loved upon. That's how we have to react to that person on the road. That's our purpose. Jesus is clear in the commandment. This is how we love the neighbor. And this is who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is not defined by geography. Our neighbor is not defined by zip code. Our neighbor is not defined by street. It's not defined by the person you can see. It's not defined by the one next to you or the one next to you on this side. It's not defined by proximity, okay? Jesus makes no mention of that. He makes no mention of your neighbor being someone with the same street address as you, the same zip code as you. He makes no mention of that. What he says is the neighbor is anyone who is hurting, anyone who is injured, anyone who is wounded, anyone who needs care, anyone who needs love. That is your neighbor. And that neighbor may be right next door to you. That neighbor may be someone you meet along the way somewhere. You will not know that neighbor's name. 
Not somebody you know. It's not your friend necessarily. It's not your relative necessarily. It's a complete unknown stranger. That's exactly who the Samaritan comes up upon. A complete unknown stranger. An absolute nobody to him. That's your neighbor. The person you don't even know. The person whose story you don't even know. You don't even know what happened to them up to the moment you find them in a world of hurt. You have no idea what happened to them. All that is clear is that that is your neighbor and they require, per the commandment, your love. Your love. Because if you love God, you love your neighbor. And you love your neighbor unconditionally the way God loves us unconditionally. God loved us at our worst, absolute worst. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us in our mess. And we're called to love others in that as well. And see, we call it mess. They don't necessarily know it's a mess. It's what they know. We can say, man, that's, that's a mess. Well, that's life for them. I'm surprised at how many people actually can live their life in a mess and chaos. But guess what? They do it. They don't know anything else. They don't know anything else. But Jesus loved us in our mess, in our chaos, in our dysfunction, in our hurt, Okay, why can't we love others the same way? Why can't we love others in their dysfunction and in their hurt and in their chaos? Why can't we love them the same way? Why can't we just accept them exactly as Jesus accepted us? Sometimes we fall into those rhythms and those habits. We're just like I said, somewhere someone's going to church today because it's a habit. Somewhere somebody's just interacting with people because it's a habit. But you got to take the time and look a little more closely. But you got to be willing to be uncomfortable. You got to be willing to get dirty. Got to be willing to get some blood on your hands sometimes. And that's how you make a difference. It's how you save a life. It's exactly what the good Samaritan did. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. And as we come to communion and we come to the altar, I go, I go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 34 tells us, he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is the place that he's left the wounded. This is the place he's left the injured the lost and the hurting. By his design, this is where he places them. And he's coming back. It's exactly what he's telling us here. He's saying, do this until I come back. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Remember the blood that was on me for you. Remember the blood that was there to save you, to help you, to heal you. And remember, I'm coming back. So I'll have our servers come forward as we open his table where we have representation of his body and his blood. And our altars are open for you as well. And Father, Sometimes we all forget just what a mess we were. The, that person seems long gone, and we were forgotten how beaten we were, how injured we were, how hurt we were. We've forgotten how badly we needed somebody to care about us. We didn't need stuff. We needed love, and we needed compassion. We needed someone to pick us up. We needed somebody to bandage us. We needed somebody to help us heal. And you sent us Jesus. Pray that as we remember what it took for us to heal, it meant hurt to him. As our wounds were healed, his were ripped wide open to make us stop hurting he had to endure unimaginable hurt God thank you for your son thank you for doing what we could not do for ourselves thanks for the love healing and mercy that come to us through Christ we say all this in his name. Amen.